Our text is Psalm 103. Psalm 103. With the possible exception of Psalm 23, this is perhaps the best known and loved of all the Psalms. And with good reason, Psalm 103 is lyrical, it's lyrically soaring, it's vast, it's comprehensive. It's theologically rich. It's moving. The depths of this psalm are impossible to plumb, especially in one sermon. Nevertheless, we'll gladly take the plunge. We will scratch the surface of what is here under the four points which are there at the back of your bulletin. Benefits, our fathers, then our Father, and then dwellers all. So the first thing is benefits. Psalm 103, verse 1. Praise or bless the Lord my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. We've seen this before in the Psalms. This is the self summoning the self to praise. Don't miss that. A good portion of uh, robust praise is speaking and rousing and exhorting yourself, your whole inmost being, to praise and to bless. Or here it means the idea is to pronounce a benediction upon the name, the holy name of God. Notice that. Bless his holy name. The holy name is God's very being. It's his identity as transcendent. The luminous, utterly pure one of Israel. The one whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And the one whose very holiness destroys pollution. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So notice how the psalm opens. The holy name bestows holy benefits. This is the wonderful thing about God's holiness. The infinitely holy one. Before whom Isaiah trembled. The one who is seen in scripture as dreadfully holy, who dwells in unapproachable light, he doesn't remain locked away in his purity for fear of being contaminated. He speaks and he acts. The holy name bestows holy benefits, becomes the holy one in our midst so that he can create a holy people. A people to bless that ineffable name which is now revealed in holy mercy. The magnificent opening to this psalm. There are two things and only two things which this psalm and the church is concerned with. Because they are the only two things which exist. God and his works. The holy name and the holy benefits. There is no 
other thing. The holy name and the holy benefits. And the psalmist is obsessed with these two things. He delights in these two things. He charges his own soul, and thus he charges us, not to forget his benefits. Forgetting is a problem for human beings. I'm fond of Freud saying that forgetfulness is willful activity. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But whether you believe that or not, we're prone to forget. We forget easily. And this whole psalm, just like our public worship in general, it's a liturgical, a a public act of remembering. Psalm 103 is an act of recollecting and recounting, of refusing to forget. Notice the command, forget not his benefits. That is why we're here. We are refusing to forget to tell ourselves to refuse to forget. That's what going to church is. Refusing to forget to tell yourself to refuse to forget. Praise God. He remembers us in his tender mercies so that we might remember him. And there are five, and they're, they're vast, they're all embracing benefits listed here in the text as the basis for praising his holy name. The reformers were fond of saying that we receive, we know of God in and through his benefits. Right? That's how we know of God. We would know nothing of the holy name if God had not been beneficent to us. If we had not seen him in the face of Jesus Christ. And thus, the reformers would speak of Christ clothed in his benefits. Or Christ clothed in the gospel. God has turned toward us. And here we hear of the benefits. The first is he forgives all your sins. This is the fount from which all blessing flows. The Holy One provides atonement for unholy and defiled creatures that we might fellowship with him in holiness. This is the the impulse of the God of love. He is holy, we are unholy, and so he comes and makes atonement to purify us, to gather us back into fellowship. And he delights to do this. He waits on high to forgive us of our sins. He heals all your diseases, the text says. And as the rest of Scripture shows, this is not an open-ended promise. People got sick and died in Israel. But healing does flow from the atonement, from forgiveness. In part now, fully later. The, The one who said, your sins are forgiven you, eventually says to all his people, Living and dead, take up your bed and walk. He redeems your life from the pit. This this idea then is that the Holy One is our Redeemer. And this is a beautiful scriptural image of our kinsman. You know, the kinsman-redeemer theme in the Old Testament. 
That's the one who comes alongside us and restores our forfeited inheritance. Who liberates us from bondage. Who finally in Jesus Christ is our redemption. This is the glory of the idea of redemption. That God himself becomes our redemption. He redeems your life out of the pits. He crowns you with love and compassion. The steadfast covenant love. This this combination of words indicates his affection for his creatures. You know, it's good to occasionally remind yourself of this. God does not just love you. He likes you. He has affection for you. And so, he's committed to you. That's, that idea is implied in the love. And, and notice, he crowns you with these things. That means he makes you royalty. He makes you us, kings. And the crown is woven with his own attributes. Out of his own holy name, you're crowned with his steadfast love. And his mercy. These are the benefits. Finally, he satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. His concern is not just otherworldly or spiritual, he bestows goods. He satisfies our desires, which he has reoriented in redemption. He gives you new desires, holy desires. He satisfies them. He gives you vigor, the text says, and energy. He makes us flourish. He brings well-being. Shalom. This is what God is about. The creator and the redeemer is the perfecter. And so this is a picture of life being remade. And it will come to full realization in the new creation, but we partake of it now. All this is what the holy name does when he turns toward us in the splendor of that holiness, to become your redeemer. So these benefits then must never be forgotten. We have to speak them to ourselves. We have to rehearse them in public. They become fuel for the magnifying of his name with all our being. As the hymn which we will close with. The hymn, which is also the title of this sermon, you may note, puts it, Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing? The second point here is our fathers. And here, here the psalm becomes corporate in nature. It remembers the deeds of God associated with the Exodus. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He did so for his groaning people at the Exodus. He makes known or made known, the text says, his ways to Moses. His deeds to the people of Israel. Notice the psalmist, after he recites the Lord's benefits, his mind goes right to the Exodus. That saving act embodies all those benefits. It's the great pattern 
of all God's saving acts, and Israel constantly refers to it as the founding act of the nation. It's a litmus test of our sensitivity to this theme throughout all Scripture to ask ourselves, when do we, in our prayers, do we mention the Exodus? You will notice the psalmist instinctively goes to the Exodus over and over and over and over. It's a monumental event in Israel's life. And so praise here turns away and looks back. Praise which does not become historical recitation. Praise which doesn't celebrate the history of God's benefits to his people. Praise which remains merely our praise is too narrow and egocentric. It is possible to praise God and be entirely egocentric. The psalmist doesn't fall into that. This is part of the reason it's important to have the sacred history internalized, at least in broad outline. You have to know the history. Because praise which forgets the fathers is diluted praise. It doesn't give God his full due. As the, as the hymn, which is also the title of this sermon, puts it, Praise him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. Verse 8 in the text is taken from the incident of the golden calf, speaking of uh, the Lord as the one who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. I mean, think of Israel. The nation deserved destruction after this appalling idolatry of the golden calf. But the Holy One is such, the text says, that he doesn't accuse forever. He doesn't harbor his anger. This is important. God is light and he is love. Judgment and anger are not the first or the last words in God or about God. There are interim ways or interim modes, if you will, of God's action toward his people. It's very important to get this. Otherwise, you think there's a kind of yin and yang in God. He's angry and he's loving, he's judging and he's gracious. No, he is love. He's everlasting father. But as love, he will get angry. He who is judged, let me put it this way. The one who is judged is more basically, more permanently, more profoundly Savior. He judges for the sake of saving you, saving his people. As the hymn, which is also the title of this sermon, puts it, He is slow to chide, swift to bless. He does not, the text continues, treat us. Israel in the first instance, this treat us means Israel, but it also means us as well. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. This is the good news. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We don't get the repayment that we deserve. Not only that, we get the benefits of verses 1 through 5. As high as the heavens 
are above the earth, so great is his love to those who fear him. God's love, which has now now been mentioned three times, this is the third time, is infinitely high, exceedingly great to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, infinitely far, he removes our transgressions from us. Infinitely great love removes your transgressions, all of them, infinitely far away. And so there's here at the heart of who God is and what he does, this stunning generosity. This God operates beyond moral convention. He's operating beyond legal rights or debt beyond keeping track or score, beyond considerations of your merit or your demerit. This is what grace is. Beyond all human calculations. He's not a celestial accountant with clients. He's a father with children. Israel saw this in their very existence. This kind of love, which called them as a nation, delivered them from Egypt. But we see it fully in the lengths that the Holy One goes to, the burdens He bears, the cost He pays to become our Redeemer in Jesus. This kind of stunning generosity comes at a stunning price, and the Holy One pays the price Himself. So the third point then is our father. As a father, verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So the love of God then, the Holy One, it's like, it's like, but it infinitely exceeds the love of a compassionate earthly father. It infinitely exceeds the love of a compassionate earthly father. And fatherhood, fatherhood is basic to God. It's not one of his pastimes, or it's not even an attribute. It's closer to a proper name. He is eternally father because he's in eternal communion with the son. You know, the great fourth century church father, Athanasius, was fond of saying, before he was creator, he was and is Father. Fatherhood is more basic than creator. There was a time when God was not creator. There was no time when he was not father. He is father. He becomes creator. He is father because he is forever in union, loving, self-giving union with the son. This is at the heart of who God is. This is another sort of um, gauge to our piety, the sense in which we call and know and delight in God as Father. Do you know that Jesus, to my knowledge, never calls God, God. He never prays to God. He never addresses God. He speaks to the Father. He speaks to his Father. Because there is no God in the abstract. There is only the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an astonishing thing. And as this father, he's compassionate. That means he enters into our suffering and our need and our affliction. 
And the depths of this compassion exceed any discipline, you know, any anger or judgment. It's out of this fatherly compassion, this infinite wellspring of God's fatherly compassion, that all of these benefits flow. The text says, as a tender father, he knows how we're formed. He formed us. As eternal father, he does in time, at some point, create. And he remembers that we're dust. He knows who he's dealing with. Animated dirt. As the hymn, which is also the title of this sermon, says, Father-like, Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. God the Father remembers who we are. We're frail, so he's tender. And not only are we frail, but we're fleeting. Verse verse 15 says, The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it. It's gone. Its place remembers it no more. Puff. Like a vapor. As the hymn which is also the title of this sermon, says, Frail as summer's flowers we perish, blows the wind, and it is gone. This is why the fatherhood is so important, because frail as we are, fleeting as we are, we have a home, we have a refuge, we have a place, because we have this father. You know, history is going to forget all but a very slim roster of us mortals. But this father does not forget his children. He does not forget his children. Verse 17 says, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love, now mentioned for the fourth time, is with those who fear him. So the love of God is as eternal, as unshakable, as enduring as his being. It holds us mortals even through death. It holds us in God's everlasting and fatherly compassion. This is a psalm which takes you from the benefits and enables you from the benefits to peer into the being of your Father and God. As the hymn, which is also the title of this sermon, puts it, While mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. And the people of God have a future. Even an earthly future. For his righteousness is with our children and our children's children. The text says. Deuteronomy 7 says even to a thousand generations. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. We are beneficiaries of this fatherly beneficence. But we are nonetheless called to fidelity. We're called to response, to obedience. But this is not the end of the fatherly beneficence and the beginning of the sort of the reign of a, you know, disciplinarian. For truly compassionate fathers, they seek not only their children's pardon, but they seek their transformation. That's why God says to you, keep the covenant. Pure indulgence is not fatherhood. 
So finally, the last point here is dwellers all. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Just note for a minute how much of the being of God has been disclosed in this all perhaps too familiar psalm. Right? The Lord is the Holy One. The Lord is love. God is Father. He is the high, eternal, everlasting God. And here, he's the everlasting king. And so all the saving benefits he, he bestows on you, they're a manifestation of this kingship, of this sovereign royalty. This throne, the text says, has unbounded dominion over all. This kingdom is already unleashed in the world in your benefits. And this kingdom is eventually going to put an end to all of our sin and all of our diseases and even our fleeting, frail existence. That's our hope. This kingdom is destined to crown you with glory to satisfy you with all good things, including everlasting vigor of youth in the new creation. And this one rules this way. He rules generously. He rules extravagantly. He rules in kingly majesty. He rules over all things. And because that's true, what we get next in the psalm is this expansive call. This concluding summons to praise. The text started with the psalmist exhorting his own soul. That's about as narrow as you can start with yourself. That's where we have to start and that's a good place to start. And then the text moved out into the history of Israel. And now it concludes with a summons to the whole created order to join this ever-expanding choir to bless this God. Praise the Lord, the text says, you angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding. It's as if the psalmist says, look, human voices are not going to be adequate to this task. We're going to have to enlist the angels. Of course, we have a horribly sentimental view of angels in our culture. You know, there's a, there was a, a woman I visited in my pastoral ministry in Tennessee quite often. And she had a, a case, you know, like a, a case where she kept little statues. And she, she liked angels. She liked to collect lots of angels. And there were a lot of angels in there. And I had just preached through Hebrews chapter 1 which is about Jesus' infinite superiority over all the angels. And she said, how do you, how do you like my uh, case full of angels? Uh, and I looked at it, and I, I, there was a row of angels, and another row of angels, then another row of angels, and then a fourth row at the bottom with some angels and a couple of statues of Jesus on the bottom. I said, look, at the very least, the Jesus statue has to go above the angel statues. <laughs> Right. We, we just went through Hebrews 1. Get the Jesus statue on top of the angel statues. I'll refrain from commenting on the whole spectacle. But please do that. But these angels are inspiring, terrifying, strange, fiery creatures in Scripture. Here they're called powerful ones. They do his bidding. They obey his word. Do you know that you and I, we together, we summon these creatures to join us in worship every week. We do it when we sing the doxology. 
Praise Him above ye heavenly host. That's you doing what the psalmist does. Calling the angels to join you in the praise. And next we, uh, we read, Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts. This could be angelic beings again, but they were just mentioned. So this is probably the stars and the sun and the moon, the whole cosmic host of heaven. They, like the angels, do his will, the text says. As the hymn, which is not the title of this sermon, puts it, His law he enforces, the stars in their courses, the sun in its orbit obediently shine. So finally here, not only just the angelic host and the heavenly host, But all of his works everywhere in all of his dominion are summoned to praise the Lord. And we can summarize this last section with words from the hymn, which is the title of this sermon. (laughs) Angels help us to adore him. Ye behold him face to face. Sun and moon bow down before him. Dwellers all in time and space. And so the psalm ends as it began with words of self-exhortation. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is but a scratch of the surface of this text. But let me conclude. What we learn here can be put this way, I think. Praise is theological witness. It has two themes. God and his work. God's being and God's ways. It starts with the holy name of God. The God who is love. Who is compassionate, tender father. The eternal God. The everlasting king. Praise delights in the being of God. The sheer godness of God. God before all things. God before creation. God alone. But then it moves to the works of God. It is, it is very much glad for God's works for us. It is summoned from the self by the self, lest we forget the Lord's lavish benefits. But when it moves to the works, it moves to ourself, and then it moves out to the history of God's work. Don't forget that. For the righteous God works justice. He makes his ways known to Moses. And finally, because there's nothing but God and his works, praise summons the whole created order. As such then, as theological witness in this form, we remember, we recollect, we refuse to forget. And we rejoice because the King of heaven has become your Father in Jesus Christ. Amen.